Hello and welcome to the Entry Level Left. I'm Jared. I'm Matt. I'm Nathan. And tonight we are talking labor. Now before we get really into the thick of labor, its significance, how it incorporates itself into the economy, let's start off with what are the essential processes of an economy? So essential processes in an economy, they're kind of intuitive, but sometimes I guess we overlook them. The main processes are production. You know, we're making commodities, we're producing food, agriculture, different, you know, sectors of the economy are producing for our next essential process, which is consumption. So people need to produce and then consume those commodities that we are making. And then the third final process that is essential to an economy would be investment. So investment allows us to set up infrastructure to produce to consume different things like that. So those are the three essential processes of most or pretty much a typical, you know, traditional or orthodox economy. Yeah. So essentially what you've outlined is production, consumption, investment, sort of forming like the bedrock of, I guess in this case, we're talking capitalist economy, but more specifically, most economies in general, but just even starting from the beginning of that what is essential to production? So essential to production would be, of course, you know, what we're talking about tonight, which would be labor. Labor and then, of course, the natural resources that are involved in production. So those are the two main components of production. You need resources, you need labor and skill, you know, and education, and all these social processes that go into creating skilled labor and different ways that we manage our resources, and our organizational structures to produce. Those are essential to production under capitalism and in different organizational structures essential to, you know, socialism as well. Yeah, and I would just add on to that too. In addition, it's like you mentioned, you need laborers, you need resources, but you also in turn need something to turn those resources into something else of which labor is involved in and that's too where you get into kind of like labor needing specific skill sets and um, training and all that sort of thing, which is also, I think, something that could be essential to production, whether it's something involving moderately skilled laborers or even the more higher skilled upper echelons of more advanced labor tasks and so on in terms of leading to production and in terms consumption and investment. Right. So whatever apparatuses and whatever processes and infrastructure you need to do all of those essential processes in an economy, uh, consumption, production, investment, those are all essential to production in a way. But something specific um, that allows production is labor. So labor, in a Marxist sense, is kind of central to as well as prior to and independent of capital in the production process. So we just talked, you know, production and everything involved in that, what goes into that, that ultimately leads to this sort of cycle of production, consumption, and investment, um, specifically as it relates to labor. But in regards to that, what are three types of values associated with economic production as it relates to labor as we're discussing tonight? There's definitely a wealth of information we could drop on this particular question. But in terms of like economic and theory of economics or philosophy of economics, understanding economics in like um, an ideological sense, there are different types of values that 
Marxists or socialists will ascribe. And the main ones there are use value, which, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of, again, intuitive. Like, what is use value? Use value is you look at a commodity. What is it used for? Does it have value in, in that sense to be used by society? And most things do have use value. Most things do. The second one is exchange value. So exchange value is basically a ratio of exchange from one commodity to other commodities. Like take, for example, say you have a house that's worth $100,000, right? And you have five cars that are worth $20,000 each. So the exchange value of those five cars to that house are equal, but they're different values independent of each other. And then the, the final value that, you know, we talk about when we think about Marxism is market value. So market value is like exchange value with like added distortions from things like supply, demand, which we'll get into later. We'll talk about like orthodox economics and how the status quo is kind of like centered around supply, demand, and what we consider very traditional or orthodox economic principles. And then marketing, branding, and even culture, social media, different things like that can, what we consider, distort the market value of something. The market value is like an exchange value with those distortions translated into a price. So it's not necessarily the use value or what it costs to produce that commodity. It's the what it costs to produce plus a bunch of other distortions. So... In general, and I, I guess everybody here may have a different take on this, but what I think is like central to like the Marxist conception is we believe that labor time determines the exchange value without the added distortions of a market or other orthodox economic principles like supply and demand. Obviously, supply and demand create this sort of back and forth tug, and then there's like an equilibrium there. So the equilibrium between those two principles of supply and demand is pretty much the cost of production. So labor, materials, those things sort of equalize and they tend to become fixed in an economy. So those would be the conceptions of value in an economic theoretical sense. But there's a wealth of information that we could that we could delve into on each one of these. But just, you know, so people understand use value is kind of like, is it useful? Yes. Exchange value. What is the ratio of this, you know, exchange uh, to another commodity in, in the market? And then price can be a reflection of that based on, you know, market value with all those distortions added in. Yeah, I think that was a fantastic explanation. I mean, obviously, you know, with all this, there's so much like nuance and things can change. Things can vary in a variety of different ways and a variety of different examples. It's not that there's sort of like one way that we specifically interpret all of these different things that you've right. just outlined. However, in the most basic sense of which is the most, you know, useful way of understanding these concepts, I think that that's absolutely correct in everything you just outlined. I think another example I would just add to that is when you were talking about market value a perfect example would be like housing right which we've talked yeah. on yeah, previous yeah. examples is it's like you know two homes could be of the same size same amount of bedrooms bathrooms whatever they essentially have the same use you know yeah exactly yeah. but 
one could be next to a really nice, you know, park or something. Or a TGI the, Friday. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. And the other one could be in a, I don't know. Next to uh, the White Sox field in Chicago. Right, like. or, next to a, or next to a highway that has a lot of, like, loud traffic, and therefore, like, the market adjust yeah. the price on those accordingly which would be considered somewhat of a distortion exactly because it's an abstraction from the use right uh or the necessity of that commodity right precisely in a way you see a lot of reactionary people kind of talk against the whole socially constructed narrative of things mm-hmm. right but value is completely socially constructed mm-hmm. oh absolutely like value in and of itself i mean it's a social thing mm-hmm. it's, it's a social process how we determine these things and that's why you know it's considered like a labor theory of value that we'll get into, but Marx never really coined that term or used that term for his law of value. But basically, to Marxist, labor is central to production and economic processes in a typical socialist economy. Yeah, or I think even just in the way in which he analyzes the way in which the economy is structured. It's that labor is sort of the driving force behind the production of these things that we're discussing. You mentioned labor theory of value, which is oftentimes very central to most uh, Marxist, socialist, even anarchist, we'll just say left thinkers in general in terms of thinking about the way the economy works. But for our listeners, what is labor theory of value specifically compared to neoclassical, you know, orthodox sort of conceptions of the economy today and of supply and demand as well. If you go to start your journey on theory and you start reading Das Kapital, um, that's really the first three, four chapters is all based around the labor theory of value. And so it kind of constitutes really the core of of Marxist values. Um, Later on, he's going to jump into why the economy doesn't work if labor theory of value is true. And so that kind of starts off as like the kind of like the basic premise of, of Marx's entire argument. Funny enough, we like to think of value determined by supply and demand now, but that actually wasn't the orthodoxy back in the time of the original capitalists like mm-hmm. Ricardo or Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at that point, labor theory value was the predominant idea. That was right. exactly what people thought the value came from. And to kind of explain it in a, in a really basic way, instead of an object being value determined by supply and demand, it's instead involved with how much labor time, and specifically he uses the words socially necessary labor time, mm-hmm. goes into creating a product. So, for example, if you have a coat, it's worth more than linen because you put labor time into developing the coat. Right. Even if it's the same amount of linen mm-hmm. that's required, the same amount of materials, what makes the value real is the fact that you put labor time into it. And that pretty much goes down to essentially is how long does an average worker take to produce an average product in average conditions, you know? So it's kind of like a theoretical basis. It's not necessarily like a hard scientific right. fact. Yeah. To just be frank about the labor theory of value, it posits that the value of a commodity is created by, like you said, how much socially necessary time goes into creating that commodity. The basis is like, how much time does it take a laborer to produce this. Yeah. The value of something is dependent on how much labor goes into it. Resources and then labor are the natural and organic processes and substances that go into commodity production. I think the knee-jerk reaction is, is well, no, that, that can't be true because why does the Kanye West wife beater cost $200, mm-hmm. but the normal wife beater costs 10 or not even, like $5? And the answer is Marx didn't actually see price and value as the same thing. Right. Those are separate 
he thought they were very related, but he didn't actually necessarily think those were the same thing. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, and you guys might see it different, I don't think of the labor theory of value as necessarily, as I said before, like hard scientific fact. You can, it's definitely a perspective, Mm -hmm. but for me, it's more of a moral perspective. And Mm -hmm. the reason I say that is because it makes sense that if you put this amount of hours into something and they put this amount of hours into something, then value should be about equivalent. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. That's an interesting take. I mean, I personally, like, I wouldn't necessarily go at, like, a moral angle, but I do agree with you that it's it doesn't necessarily have to be a hard scientific, you know, sort of rigid understanding. I think even some of the, like, deep, deep, deep conceptions of labor theory of value are even contested amongst the left. And I think that's why, you know, here, like, even trying to move through and get through, like, such a hard, dense topic, we're not going to hit everything and we're not going to hit all the debates. And even just mentioning DOS Capital, it's like, we obviously can't stress enough to our listeners how important it is to read that, but it is also an extremely dense read and it is difficult. But, you know, these sorts of concepts, labor theory of value, I don't think they're necessarily like even on the left, like super rigid. But one of the things that you were even just mentioning, it kind of goes back to an earlier point. You know, you're talking about the the Kanye shirt versus yeah. the regular shirt. I mean, that's illustration, right, of what we were talking about previously with market value, right? Is it's like, yeah... Technically, you can have the same labor processes go into two things, but that sort of price element, the the vast difference between the Walmart brand and the Kanye West brand has a lot to do with market value, name association, that sort of. I mean, so as Matt another... said, it's a, it's a distortion, you right. know, you're, you're actually looking at something less objectively because of the names attached to it, because right. of the market value attached to it, you know. I mean, that's what markets do. I mean, yeah. we'll get into it, but like that is the the chief difference between you know, what a socialist economy would look like versus a capitalist economy, because you have all those distortions that are innate in a market. So supply, demand are are principles in like, you know, what we would consider like orthodox economics. But if we plan these things, the supply is there. Right, right. If we plan to have this many of this commodity, it doesn't really matter. So the demand is not really there in a market sense. It's like, we're planning for these things because we know that we'll need these things, mm-hmm. right? We're producing for need. We're not producing to, you know, artificially construct some type of supply and demand framework in a market. Right. Because that is in and of itself is a distortion that when you're getting right down to essential processes in an economy, you know, production, consumption, and investment, what do you need your economy to do? Produce, mm-hmm. Right. And what do people need to do to survive? They need to consume. So you should invest in structures that allow you to produce the most efficiently, right? And use your resources in the most efficient way. Now, when you put a market in between those very, very simple and necessary conditions of an economy, then you have all of these distortions confusing and estranging what the economy is supposed to do for people and how it's supposed to function for people in the world. Essentially, it's like the market in a market economy, like you're you're manufacturing demand. You know what I mean? Like the demand for a lot of these so-called, you know, supply and demand side economics surrounding specific products, it's like, well, a lot of this shit, it's there's no supply and demand to it because it's it's a manufactured demand. I mean, so I guess in a theoretical sense, yeah, there is, but it's it's not providing based on need or some sort of like 
general creativity. It's it's all profit driven with the intent to uh, manufacture demand for something that in turn turns a profit long term that has nothing to do necessarily with meeting the needs of the greater population. And why I like that Matt used the word distortion is because that's the same word that you'll hear libertarian types or free market types use when they talk about taxes or welfare or anything like that. They'll call it, or a subsidy, they'll call it a distortion, a market mm -hmm. distortion. But in reality, it's like, no, no, the market is already a distortion all on its own. Right. Well, and that's, it's actually interesting because you were talking about earlier again with the Kanye t-shirt thing, you said like, that's kind of like a knee jerk reaction. And so what I usually think of that I hear, or I've seen at least online with like knee jerk reactions surrounding, you know, supply and demand and like market value versus use value, you know, all these sorts of things is actually uh, like this notion that if you actually go by the cost of something being how much labor went into it, well, then all of the prices on everything would go way up, right? Because, you know, most of the shit that we have in the U.S. is like made in China and, you know, like completely like oppressed and, you know, downtrodden workers and all that sort of stuff. But it's like, actually, the point is not necessarily that the coat that you can get for $5 on Amazon is now going to be $250. It's that the workers who made it are actually going to be compensated properly for the labor that went into making that. And a socialist economy is what I mean. In the beginning of Das Kapital, as we had said before, is where the big discussion on labor theory of value is. And what he's doing is he's setting up this core argument of why capitalism will fail, which really comes down to the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And that's really the kind of the culmination at the very end of Das Kapital 3. Volume trilogy, three. Volume the, three, the, yeah. the trilogy, yeah. volume three. That's really where it comes. Angles returns. Yeah, that's the, really where it, it kind of comes together. The phantom specter menace of communism. <laughs> you know, that's where it all really comes together at the end. Is is Marx describes, and at that point, it's also Engels describes the tendency of the the rate of profit to fall. So, what is that exactly? Like you said, I mean, definitely this was a central concept in. Marxist economics, and definitely like a major contradiction of capitalism. And of course, it's, you know, highly contested, just like a lot of this stuff, because it throws a wrench in the status quo of, you know, capitalist hegemony and orthodox economics. But basically, Marx sort of argued that technological innovation, like the printing press or the steam engine, those are kind of like earlier developments, but even things like the computer, the computers or um, Microsoft you know, Excel. <laughs> yeah, Microsoft <laughs> Excel that allowed people to just crunch spreadsheets all day. Things like that, like technological innovation enabled more efficient means of production from that physical productivity would increase as a result because now you can put all these great formulas into your Excel spreadsheet and it'll do all your work for you. Any type of technological advancement you can think of you know, as Marx would say, it has a, a bias towards eliminating excess labor. Like technology has a bias towards eliminating work that we do. That's why we invent things, right? That's why we invented the car so we don't have to walk 100 miles, you know, to go to Disney World with our family, whatever. That's why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, physical productivity in that sense would increase as a result of this greater output, right? So like a greater number of commodities would be produced per unit of capital invested. And then simultaneously, technological innovations would, you know, ultimately replace people with machinery. Like we have self-checkout, 
you know, self-driving cars, like all these different types of technologies that are ultimately going to be employed by the ruling class to eliminate labor costs. So assuming as Marxists do that labor is the only thing that can produce new value or additional value in an economy, this greater physical output would embody uh, basically um, gradually decreasing value and profit over time. So within capitalism built in is this tendency of the rate of the profit of capitalists and capitalist modes of production to fall in profit and become less, you know, competitive. What I think so like intuitive about it is that it's kind of like walking the labor theory of value backwards because the reason that the profit is falling is because we're no longer creating value by socially necessary labor time. Mm -hmm. As all those technologies develop, you have less and less social necessary labor time. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it's an extension directly of that, that you're uh, that you're seeing the profits fall. A lot of people like, can test it again because people are like, no, profits are at a record high. But again, this kind of goes back to those market distortions. We have to well, yeah, look at what is manufactured demand and what, all that what is being it, fetishized, yeah. what is being, you know, what are the new demands, things like mm -hmm. that. So it's not as, as straightforward as Marx probably would have hoped. You have to also keep in mind that with this and at this time, and also again in sort of the beginnings and at, even at the height of Keynesianism, there was sort of this assumption and a lot of you know economic theories at the time that with this increase of technology there would actually be less and less need for laborers to actually work as much right. and put in as much time in their day to sort of develop and build up infrastructure and whatnot right. in, in a capitalist system. However, as we've seen capitalism develop over time, that obviously didn't become the case. The more machinery that became about, the more and more that we've seen workers continue to work more and more. As we always say here, we're trying to create kind of like a dialectic to explain these things and this ideology to people that may not be initiated into it. But like we talked about, or Nathan talked about on a, on a previous episode, capitalism always has a downward effect on wages to maintain you know, viability in a free market. So with that in mind, and with these technological innovations that always have a labor-saving bias mm -hmm. under capitalism where, you know, these things are owned or these institutions of technology are largely owned by the capitalist class, they're going to be employed in cutting costs. And for the most part, this private property allows them to be shielded from the effects that that would have on the working class, which is, you know, loss of job, loss of income struggle to maintain or survive in the economy, these things affect the working class fundamentally different than the ruling class who controls, you know, mainly the private property that upholds these technological advancements in the first place. So understanding that will help you understand how it all kind of connects with each other. But capitalism, you know, to sum it up, it has a downward effect on wages. The technological advancements that happen under a capitalist mode of production will always have a labor-saving bias that is always going to benefit the bourgeois class or the owning class first and foremost. And then those two things combined are going to create an economic situation where profit is falling because consumers in an economy don't have the real wages that it right. that it takes for them to buy the commodities that the capitalists are producing. And that's a fundamental contradiction to capitalism that Marx talks about. 
which is why we see boom and bust cycles yep. constantly. There are tons of bust cycles that we could list off, but you know, the Great Depression is one example. And then the, you know, one we always talk about on the pod is the 2008 financial collapse or the housing bubble crash, the Great Recession. So, I mean, there are copious amount of examples of this happening, but I just want to make it clear to the listeners, like, this is why these things are happening. There are very real economic implications of why these things are happening based on the superstructure of capitalism. And this sort of brings us to where we want to bring the rest of the episode is how does one individual negotiate with the system? How does one person, one laborer actually flex their power in relation to the capitalist? And the answer is unions. Yeah. Well, even to just to that is it's like, how does one individual negotiate? Well, it's not one individual. <laughs> it can't be one individual. I think that's exactly like, you know, as we previously discussed with like neoliberalism, everything we've talked about up to this point is sort of this build up to labor in relation to capitalism today, specifically neoliberal capitalism with its emphasis on individuals and individual competitors in the marketplace, individual laborers, you know. And no society, just right, families right. and individuals. It does make the individual laborer feel immensely, you know, hopeless in one having to feel the need to take on the role of negotiating one's wage, one's health care benefits, one's social benefits from said job. Um, and one individual alone can't do that. Um, it takes a collective, organized, working working class, working body at a particular job site, whether it's the factories of old or a Walmart today. But the only way that that happens is through a labor union. And labor unions historically have existed as bodies for a collective, unified working body to negotiate with the essentially the, the shop owners, the capitalist class, to say we demand higher wages, we demand health care, we demand a pension, and if you don't give it to us, we're going to shut this entire fucking factory down because the entirety of that capitalist's wealth and future profit is dependent upon the cashier register still being operated, the uh, products still being filled on the shelves, the... Uh, Floors getting mopped. Yeah, the to the Toyota Camry being assembled on yeah. the line, like all these sorts of things. You know, a capitalist can't make a profit off without them happening, and it is dependent upon laborers to do those things. Right. I mean, labor unions and just like what we would consider collective bargaining, because that's what a labor union does. Like you join a labor union to collectively bargain with the capitalist class for better economic conditions, better workplace conditions, better workplace safety, and, and rights. So really what a labor union is and what it does is essentially it creates a balance of power. You know, it's often not really a balance mm -hmm. because the employer still wields such a large amount of power, especially based on policy enactments that we'll talk about later in the mm -hmm. show. But really it's the way that labor collectively battles against the ownership class for rights and privileges and a share of what they produce. It's the civil disobedience of the worker. If you walk out of a factory by yourself, 
probably nothing changes. They find somebody. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it, whatever. But they can't fire 500 people without losing a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's how you get the power is by, by unionizing together and, uh, and really coming to the table and saying, Hey, it's, it's our way or the highway. Yeah. Did you guys see the recent thing that Delta airlines put up? Oh yeah. The little like thing, like union dues cost like $700 a year and wouldn't you like to buy the newest gaming system with yeah. like some of the greatest hits or whatever? Right. And it's like, wouldn't that be fun? And it's just, it's such a low brow, like absolute garbage take mm-hmm. on, yeah. on Delta's end. But if, if you even think about it for a second to like deconstruct it, like union membership, like, yes, in a lot of cases, you have to pay dues to be in a yeah, in a union which you should yeah but that allows the union to operate yeah. and collectively bargain and represent the workers right. that pay union dues so right. you may be paying union dues seven hundred dollars a year you know i'm not really sure you know if that's a high figure or a low figure but regardless union workers tend to on a large scale, make more than non-union workers. And it's yeah. it's a significant percentage higher. And just think about the motives. Why is a company like Delta investing in advertisement or like internal materials to get you to not unionize? How is that worth their buck? The only answer is because they know it's going to save them money in the long run on labor costs. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, too, how much money they spent on that advertising. The fact that they were willing to spend that kind of money to basically disincentivize people unionizing amongst their ranks, it shows the extent to which they don't want you unionized, which is for a purpose because historically as you were saying those workers that are unionized overwhelmingly make higher wages than non-unionized workers but even wages aside for a second unionized workers overwhelmingly have benefits which pensions and all that yeah. or just healthcare which far outweighs that fucking $700 yeah. in union dues i mean for instance like where i work i'm a part of a union like we are unionized in what i do and i pay a certain amount of money i think it's like you know twenty dollars gets pulled out of my paycheck it's not technically a union but i'm not going to get into details of that for reasons of it would give away <laughs> my employment <laughs> nike but, nike had yeah right nike nike sicko um yeah it's basically a representative body that collectively bargains on behalf of us underlings and because of it, I pay $25 a month for full coverage health care. I have a pension. The, the list really goes on and on. And I'm very, very, very happy with everything I get in return. And it's overwhelmingly beneficial to any other place I've ever worked beforehand that didn't have any of those setups. So, I mean, the whole Delta thing is just like you're treating people like children. You're like, wouldn't you rather play video games over have a fucking functioning life with healthcare and I think a it, decent wage. I think it shows the detachment of the, you know, capitalist class, the the owners of Delta, you know, and it's Well, I mean, it's, they've been successful. They successfully brainwash people with this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, right. It shows like some of the depth of elitism they have to basically be like wouldn't you you know little piggies rather just play your super Nintendo. Yeah, the way the tone of it almost like it kind of made me feel like 
you got to be fucking kidding me. That's it, like it, so patronizing. No, it reminds me. Well, of, I'm saying it, it's like, you're making them like a child. It literally, yeah. it literally reminds me of fucking Portal, the Portal video game, where every time you like are trying to get to a next level, she's like encouraging you to not go that way because there's cake this way or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the cake is a lie. We all we all know the Listen, cake. Listen, everybody. <laughs> Delta is a lie. Okay. Right. The cake is a lie. Join a union anyway. So we've kind of gone over essentially what a labor union is, which is basically a collective representation of workers in the workplace. And we've talked about what the purpose of a labor union is in terms of collective solidarity in the workplace. What can laborers do with that collective solidarity? I would say generally better workplace satisfaction, right? just all kinds of benefits from being in a union. But really that collective solidarity is sort of a bastion against the ownership class. That's really what I see it as. But I mean, in terms of like, if the ownership class says we're not going to meet the workers' demands, what can that union do? Strike. Yeah. Right. They strike. And what is a strike, essentially? It can take many different forms, but probably the most common that people are used to seeing or hearing about would be like walkouts or Mm -hmm. just protests where people completely just stop working. Like they don't come into work and they're their union is mobilized and they protest and they just cause a bunch of loss of profit for the owners of the corporation or wherever mm-hmm. they work. And I, there was a recent uh, story like that. And I forget it's like Uber, Uber, Uber yeah. is one Uber and Lyft, but also it was like a, it was like a grocery store chain. But anyway, they lost like hundreds of millions of dollars from yeah. like a multi day strike. that their workforce went on. And it's like the capitalists may not want to do these things, but ultimately when you're represented by a union, that collective solidarity means that you're not alone. You have the power of every worker in that union to bargain for a better life and a better economic situation, better conditions for you and everyone else that it represents. Right. And I think the strike is a testament to okay, like if you are not going to meet our demands and you think you're powerful, yeah, wait till we go on strike, yeah. which when when strikes happen, why it's so important to, you know, not cross the picket line is because of exactly that. Like in this day and age, it can lead to hundreds of millions of dollars of profit loss for these people. And basically they are left with no other choice other than to meet the demands of the workers or continue to lose right. profits and go out of business. And With that, it should be noted when strikes occur, two things happen. If the union was in any way divided or infiltrated by those who would cross the picket line, capital tends to get far more organized after that and exploit it, which it then can crack down on or break up the unions, Yeah, um, fire those unionized employees. Or or, sometimes um, try to eke out violence. And then they'll break up the union. And I mean, this was very prominent and we'll talk about it later in the show. But I mean, strike breaking was a big thing in the early history and and even still today. But a lot more violent strike breaking happening, you know, in the early history of of the U.S. before certain, you know, labor standards Mm -hmm. were passed. Really, I just want to be super clear for people. Your boss needs you. You don't need your boss because ultimately, if all laborers stopped showing up to work, the system would come to a screeching fucking halt. Mm-hmm. Like we we own everything. When you really examine it, like labor runs everything. And if we were to just 
for one second realized our power, it would be over. There are so many testaments to that, too. I mean, even in the 90s, I think of the UPS strike that happened that pretty much grinded the entire like American Postal Service to a giant fucking halt. And as a result of that, I mean, anyone you know who works for UPS today who's been with UPS for a good amount of time, killer, killer benefits, killer wages. I mean, it's a hard job, but basically what we're getting at is it pays off to be organized and it pays off to strike. And when you strike, you strike together. And the alternative to, you know, the strikers, those who are willing to cross the picket line, we often call scabs. What is a scab, though? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been asking, like I see on social media, like when I go on like posts of of like strikes and stuff like people are like, what is that? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a strike breaker. You know, it's someone who doesn't honor the strike. They under they cross the picket. Yeah, line. they undermine the ability of the. Uh, protesters or the union. Well, give it, give an example of like how that would manifest. One of the biggest ways that companies do it is they hire like a staffing agency or like a temp service to take care of the job that uh, was once being taken care of by a full-time employee who's out on strike. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as soon as everyone walks out, they say, "Mm, we're just going to keep operations rolling. Mm -hmm. So those people who are crossing the picket line, they're workers who are, are picking up the slack that the strikers left for them you know yeah and they're in turn keeping the system running and causing those you know union strikers they're, to they're, ba- basically they're uh, they're minimizing the impact of the strike yeah you know, they're they're fighting against labor and they make they then make the labor the organized laborers and their union uh expendable yeah uh, largely and yeah don't be a fucking scab don't but, be a scab yeah you're like directly shitting on someone who's trying to better their economic situation like a scab is like literally the scum of the fucking earth as far but, as I'm concerned. But I've seen this online too, and I want to address this for you know our listeners. What do you say to people who say, well, those those scabs, quote unquote scabs, are just trying to better their lives? You don't know if they could have been a minimum wage worker. Now right. they have the opportunity for an $18 an hour UPS job or something. Yeah, but I mean... What I would say to those people, and I'm sure, you know, Nathan, you know, you may have some more input. What I would say to those people is, first of all, this, like we said from the beginning, we're making a structural analysis here. Mm-hmm. There's not a, a mom and pop analysis. It's not an individualized analysis. This is a structural and superstructural analysis of how things play out. So when you look at capitalism and you look at strikes, you look at labor unions, which are principally the only way that the working class has to usually peacefully demand things from the capitalist and owning class. I mean, these are the only way that we have to bargain for a better livelihood, a better working condition. Okay, so maybe they're working at a a, a minimum wage job, and then they have an opportunity to be a strike breaker and they make $18 an hour. First of all, that's usually a temporary position. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, they're not getting benefits or anything like that. So really, they may stay there for a little while. It's a temporary reprieve or a temporary advantage, and then they're stepping on someone else's toes. But ultimately, this works under capitalism because with the neoliberal project, it gets us to look at society and each other in a very atomized sense so that we don't have any duty to each other. We don't have any solidarity. It actively undermines solidarity in a cultural sense. So when I respond to those type of people, I just say, that's not a structural analysis. And you're literally stepping on people's toes to get yours. 
when you know we don't have to live in a society like that Mm -hmm. by making those decisions yeah you may get a leg up but ultimately you're just creating more problem you're kind of reshuffling the deck yeah exactly okay so you drew a good hand this time well what happens the next time you know it's in your own interest Mm -hmm. to actually support labor the thing to think about a strike it's really like a democratic action it's not just like a few people were mad so we went on strike strikes take a long time Mm -hmm. to be put together Mm -hmm. and they take a lot of effort from all the employees so if you have a group of people and you realize that while the majority of these people all have a grievance against you know, the capitalist or mm-hmm. the owner of that company, then don't you think that's legitimate? You know, why would mm-hmm. you, why would you doubt that? Why are you going to cross that strike line? Yeah. Yeah. Those are far more well-articulated responses than what I would have. I usually <laughs> just say, fuck all scabs. And I don't give a fuck about your excuse. If you cross the picket line, you're a fucking piece of shit. You're a scab. And also too, uh, the more you undermine, I think what you guys are both getting at, the more you undermine collective labor over there, you might undermine the potential or the currently existing collective labor where you're fucking at right now. Yeah. So it's just a bad precedent to be a strike right. breaker, to be a scab, to right. cross picket lines. Like, just don't do that stuff. Yeah. So I think what we've just kind of gone over getting to labor, what it is and how it organizes, also talking about labor unions, I think where we're headed is sort of now in the modern aspects. You know, when we look at labor unions today, we've obviously talked about the good things that they've done. There's probably a few more we could list, but what really are the modern strengths, but also the weaknesses to organize labor, specifically labor unions as they exist today? Well, we talked a lot about like the strengths. Obviously, collective bargaining allows workers to jointly organize and demand better conditions for themselves. And that's like a major strength. And the solidarity that comes along with it is a major strength. And it just helps people really put class in the proper context, really understand that without these rights, these labor rights and these rights to organizing and have unions, as much as we still are with those rights, being able to unionize is the difference between pretty much feudalism Mm -hmm. and like, you know, social democracy. You know, it's not an ideal condition, but it's the difference you know, between literal garbage right. and, and some something pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah something yeah. decent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, funny enough, for this exact reason, Marx wasn't even necessarily like a, a big supporter of labor unions, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty fucking whack, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is that he sees the mode of production itself as exploitative. So it's like, who cares that you could, you, why would you want to negotiate the terms of your imprisonment? Right. Why would you want to negotiate the terms yeah. of your enslavement? Yeah. It's still unjust. Sure, yeah. maybe you can get better conditions, but does that just justify the whole thing? It's an intermediary thing. And I think absolutely, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's so important to look at it in that context if you're a Marxist, if you're a socialist, because that's not our ultimate end to just fight for the scraps or, off the or, capitalist or to table. just like, we're not like, unionists we're not just like if we just everyone gets unionized you know i mean i would love that yes 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 yes. but it's like that's not our goal right that's not that is not the overarching end goal it i mean we yes we we do look you heard it here first entry level left does want every single fucking (laughs) we fuck with unions we fuck with unions (laughs) but what we're saying is like we don't want to just get unionized under capitalism and then that's like we're all happy and what we're saying is the anarcho-syndicalists are wrong right (laughs) right but i mean because because even if you were to do that right like 
there's always going to be that class conflict, that, that contradiction yeah, there. That downward effect on wages, that exploitative relationship yeah. between, you know, property and, and non-property right. owners. And shifting the needle from, as you said, you know, feudalism or social democracy. Are we more in this era, yeah. this end, or are we more on this end? You know? I mean, social democracy is, is like a halfway point. It's yeah. like a half step. But I'd rather that than like literal feudalism. Right, of course. Yeah. We we all would. We, <laughs> we don't even need to get into that debate. One thing I wanted to talk about here in regards to kind of like the weaknesses of organized labor, you know, specifically labor unions today. Of course, that's why I prime the question with modern, you know, strengths and weaknesses is I think one of the things that happens a lot now is they're largely in the pocket of an endorsed the Democratic Party. I mean, it's been that way. Yeah, unions. Yeah. It's been that way since like the 60s, you know, if not before then. Oh, but, well before then. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, they're heavily, and I'm not just saying like they're in the pocket of like the Bernie Sanders Democrats. I mean, they're in the, the po- they're completely in the establishment. And, like they're as a cop union. Yes, yes. Know? Well, I mean, yeah, that's been there for a minute, but. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But like even the heads of like the AFL CIO and AFSME and SEIU, they're they're the as soon as they see a staple Democrat come out in the race for the presidency, immediate endorsement. I mean yeah. immediate endorsements of Hillary Clinton, immediate like it was rare to find a union in the United States that like went the Bernie camp even though like there there was just no question about who was the more labor supportive candidates right so that's one i think the other one is anyone i think who's you know maybe been in college and like the political science circles or anything like that has probably at some point been approached by or heard of their friends or colleagues working for unions as staffers right I mean, the union is full more of staffers than it is actual workers. And, you know, why that's a problem is because one, like, if the union is not organized in the majority by the workers, then it's not equipped to deal with worker demands and worker needs. I mean, it's not even a functional union. Right. First and foremost. Another one, as I actually want to give a specific example, going back to 2010, some people may remember when Scott Walker was first elected to governor in Wisconsin, one of the first things he enacted was right-to-work laws because of how strong a lot of the unions are in Wisconsin, especially around beer and dairy and all that. So when that happened, there was a massive strike that filled the Capitol. Unions in solidarity with other unions, shutting the entire motherfucker down, basically. And the majority of the discourse amongst the actual labor union, the workers, was to continue that strike and to basically immobilize the entire state, forcing Scott Walker to resend the right to work laws or resign, right? It had a lot of momentum. It was moving very successful. And the staffers of the unions who were higher up in the union ranks, I guess, than the actual workers themselves, said, no, 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 no. What we're going to do is we're going to get a petition to recall Scott Walker, and we're going to discontinue the strike. Yeah, they de-radicalized they took, the what union. They, what they did is they took all of the energy and radicalism of the union and channeled it into this electoral bullshit, and what ultimately happened, it failed. It, it completely collapsed. Yeah, it's basically, you know the meme where it's like, 
someone is taking a, a, a water gun, a squirt gun, and aiming it at the sun, and then the sun is like labeled climate change, and then the water gun is labeled change.org. Petitions. Right, 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 right. That's basically what we're saying here. Right. They channeled all of that labor energy into what staffers know best, which is a fucking petition, and it yeah. fucking failed, and it was a disgrace, and... Honestly, I mean, maybe I'm just way too much of a fucking tanky, but <laughs> all of those fucking staffers involved in that shit should have just hanged their heads in shame because it was it was completely staffer driven. And had that continued, Scott Walker wouldn't have been governor of that state and and or right to work in one of the most one of the strongholds of blue collar labor, you know. Well, right to work is terrible. It's well, horrendous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's it's the absolutely li- like terrible for work the working yes. class. What it is is so our listeners are clear. Right to work because I had to deal with this because we're in the great state of Florida. When you are in a union, you have to pay union dues. Right to work simply means that you don't have to pay union dues. So the labor union still continues to represent you, and you get all the benefits, but you don't have to pay union dues now. Obviously, you're like, whoa, that sounds great at first, but what is that ultimately aimed at doing? Gutting the funds of the union so that it can't represent the workers and collectively bargain. Perfect example, when I was a graduate TA, I um, was a part of a union, the Graduates Assistance United, and our union worked to collectively bargain with the university I was at to continue to give us dental and healthcare and all that stuff. Now, for those unaware of the collective bargaining process, anytime you go to collectively bargain with your employer, you open up like a case, if you will. And as soon as it's open, it can't be closed until an agreement is met. If you are a gutted union, why can that be a problem? Because you going up to said university who have lawyers from Ivy League places making hundreds of thousands of plus dollars a year or whatever to basically crush your union... And you're this, these six graduate students, probably only maybe 10 more of you actually pay your union dues. And you pretty much are hoping that you have a little bit of money to give some guy who will basically be, is doing it pro Pro bono bono, to represent you. And if it's you and your little lawyer versus them and their big lawyers, and you've just opened up that contract, you're going to get all of the shit you probably have currently completely fucking taken away. Yeah. And so what happens is when you're gutted like that, you just don't demand new stuff. You keep your contract closed unless the university has to negotiate it with you again. That's how like the capitalist class subjugates labor. This isn't a conspiracy theory. Like capitalism and capitalists don't want labor to organize. They don't want us to demand better working conditions. They don't want us to have any power. They don't want us to have any control over our livelihoods or the way that we produce they want to be in complete control and dominance over every facet of like economic mode of production that we live under. So, I mean, this isn't a conspiracy theory. It plays out and is very transparent in the policy of both the Republicans and Democrats and the way that they support these things and the way that they sort of like with the example with staffer is like populating many unions and making them, you know, de-radicalized and ineffective and just impotent right and then there is a very real class character to these issues you know these staffers tend to be very bourgeois in character like a lot of them are you know really into this idea of like labor organizing but they don't have the class analysis that it takes to come at it from a radical angle because it doesn't affect them 
and most of those staffers, as you were just kind of joking, like they come from places like change.org and, you know, these kinds of places that are really just like, it's just about petition building and the modern democratic party, that's what they want. You know, they like, they like stafferism, you know, staffer. It's like woke activism. It's basically like, like look at Congress. Like they never get anything fucking done. Right. Unless that's what staffers do. Right. Like it's all performative for Mm -hmm. the most part. If you want a job virtue signaling, that's your job. You hit the nail on the head because perfect example, when I was out of my undergraduate before I went back to grad school and I was looking for work, I actually interviewed to be a staffer at SEIU. And the first thing they were asking me is like, because I had been in student organizing when I was in my undergraduate and they saw that on my resume and they were like, oh, you know, did you guys do any protests? You know, yeah, 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 we did this one and that one. First thing they're asking is, were there any arrests? And if so, did you guys get it documented? And were you arrested and blah, blah, Because they want that. You know what I mean? Like, it's performative. Like, they want when there's a... The social capital. Yeah, they want when there's a $15 an hour uh, or a 15 now, like, little strike at a local McDonald's. They want the other staffers with their cameras filming two of their staffers getting arrested so that they can make it seem like they're doing this like extreme grandiose work that really in large part harms a lot of the workers because it's not driven by what they want and their demands. Yeah, I mean like stafferism just completely impotent, ineffective. Kind of jumping back to the main question about the strengths and weaknesses of unions. I think one good thing is that a union provides a pretty unique climate. A lot of people who are really really involved in unions, they'll they'll be a good community resource. A lot of them are really involved in like divestment campaigns Mm -hmm. and stuff like that a lot of them are involved in like tenant unions Mm -hmm. so instead of being like a worker labor union you're actually organizing against landlords that's so big yeah huge a lot of the people who are union i don't want to call them union freaks but the people who are really (laughs) involved in it yeah they're also usually like mavens in in those other areas too i do want to kind of flip that's my Mm -hmm. pro my con um is that Unions historically have been extremely, extremely suppressed by the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, a love-hate relationships with with unions in the U.S. And there's plenty of acts that do things like give more rights to scabs. That's been something that's passed. Mm-hmm. There's been things like right-to-work states, of course, have, have been expanding. They haven't been decreasing. There's lots of different little things the government has done to make unionizing even more difficult. And that can be kind of like a downside to to mm-hmm. being involved in unions. Yeah. And of course, too, as soon as they find out you're trying to unionize, you're fired. It's done. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, it's yeah. game over. And it's it's hard. But obviously, we've been talking at length now about the pros and cons, essentially, of the current state of labor. But let's talk about switching gears slightly, but still on the same trajectory. What were some major labor victories in the 20th century that we can be thankful for that really highlight, again, this importance of why unions are so important today? Right. So, I mean, taking like a walk down memory lane in the U.S., our history is very, very violent and bloody in terms of like labor and reform. Lots of violent strikes and riots in the 19th century, early 19th century, all the way up until today in some cases. But one of the most prominent, what I would consider victories of the 20th century, after almost a century, you know, then some of just constant rioting and constant strikes and different like unions and federations and different 
coalitions just out and out battling with private owners of enterprise. In 1938, President Roosevelt signed what was considered the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it limited, finally, child labor because you would see as early as like after the Civil War and, and even earlier around that time, you would see children as young as like eight, nine years old working in factories, you know, 16 hour days for sometimes they would make a dollar mm-hmm. in a week and they would just exploit the living fuck out of children for their labor. And, you know, when you're that age, especially they're just in a lot of cases, they're just innocent. They're just doing what they're told to do if they're not in school they're going to work and they're just made to grow up like really fast. Right. But in 1938, we finally said like, this is fucked up. Let's stop doing that. So we signed that the fair labor standards act of 1938 into law. And then that outlawed a lot of forms of child labor prior to that Ulysses S grant, one of the you know leaders of the civil war on the union side issued a proclamation in 1869 that guaranteed a stable wage and an eight-hour workday, but only for government workers. So government workers have had those privileges for a long, long, long time, which weren't really handed down to the rest of the private sector till 1940, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was sort of amended to include that 40-hour work week. But all along, from like 1869 up until 1940, and even afterwards, there was probably some animosity or tension regarding this 40-hour work week that people had been fighting for for, you know, in effect, like 70-plus years, Mm -hmm. right? Prior to that, uh, they had the Illinois legislature passed a law mandating an eight-hour workday, and then employers refused to cooperate with it. And that's where you get the strike that erupted in Chicago that became known as May Day. So, I mean, that is like a very brief synopsis of like major victories there are tons of others that, you know, I really, really urge people go and and look up and research and, and read about. Um, but those I would consider like very, very important tipping points for yeah. the labor movement in the U.S. I mean, just to, to kind of allude to the ones that Matt's talking about, some of the really important ones, there are so many things you take for granted. Time and a half, that's because of, of labor movements. Um, universal education, that's, mm-hmm. that's from labor. Public, yeah, public education, yeah. Even even helping out a little bit with the Civil Rights Act and in things like if you're a parent, I guarantee you know what FMLA is. Things like that were all because of labor movements. And it's interesting, too, because I want to kind of draw maybe like even a modern connection to all this. You know, you're talking victories with like the eight hour workday and how it was essentially like the private sector initially was like, yeah, fuck all that noise, yeah, no. you know. Um, that's interesting. I, I don't recall like the guy's name or whatever but essentially there is like a lot of we'll call them for the time they would be like the modern day equivalent of like an op-ed or something like that yeah. <laughs> um there were a lot of people that for the time would be considered you know centrists they probably would have proudly identified that way who Radical said that centrist. who said that you know essentially like we hear your demands but you know anything less than a 12-hour workday and more than one weekend. Yeah, we'll never get anything no, done. No, no, Fucking no. Fucking snowflake. No, 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 no. They didn't say that. They said, you know, anything less than that, and people will just devolve into alcoholism and fornication and drug, drug addiction and 
obviously none of that shit happened. You know what I mean? In fact, I the, mean those are social problems, but they'd probably right, be but, worse. But under what a have we seen? What have we seen a correlation with? Freeze. The longer the longer your work hours and the more stress and extremity that you're put under, the more likely you are to fucking drown drink. it in a fucking bottle. Yeah, I mean, fucking drink. And look at Ireland, you know. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> but kidding. there's there's sort of been though like again keeping that kind of modern connection there has been a substantial reversal in a lot of this right because in my profession for instance like the private sector like you were saying how it was initially the public sector first had the you know eight hour work days the private sector in my field is like you're if you work an eight hour day like you are not something's wrong like those people are working 60 hour weeks minimum you know minimum and even it's even encroaching into the government sector because the more and more that we've had since the advent of like the Tea Party movement, it, it predates that, but especially at the height of the Tea Party movement, you have a lot of these like people who are like government workers aren't as efficient as the private sector. So we're now being forced to like document all of our time and basically be under greater surveillance, which ultimately leads to us like working just as many hours or close to as many hours as the private sector is when historically that was just not the case. And it shouldn't be the case for anyone in any sector as far as I'm concerned. Again, the importance of having a fucking union. But one thing that you were bringing up, Nathan, that I think was like a really good point is kind of this intersection of like the labor movement playing a bit of a role in like the civil rights movement. But I think that's a really important thing to bring up because I think labor especially labor unions historically have had a, a, a role in organizing themselves with other movements. I mean, can we think of any in particular here? Or? I think it goes without really saying that labor movements have been intertwined with the civil rights movement, really any progressive movement in the U.S., like mm. as far back as like the abolition of slavery. I mean, labor was involved in that because obviously you know, if you have slaves, those are like a primary component of your labor force, right? Mm -hmm. So abolition of slavery is very closely intertwined with labor rights and Mm -hmm. labor organizing, you know, even from like a very long time ago, like in the 1800s, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, up until the civil rights. And I mean, these are majority left movements. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really see the right advocating for stronger labor unions. I mean, this is not something that you've ever seen the right ever advocate for. We just talked about the civil rights movement, you know, and labor unions like organizing in conjunction with that. It's not to say labor unions historically haven't had their issues with race um, because they have definitely been very exclusive in that regard. But one thing that jumps into my mind, too, is even in the 90s, like the Longshoremen's Union, for instance, in California, um, or maybe it was the 80s. I think it was the 80s, late 80s. Don't quote me on those dates. But essentially, the Longshoremen's Union out in California essentially shutting down the port and not accepting any goods from apartheid South Africa as showing solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement that was going on in that country. And that is one of the major, you know, kind of shifts into yeah. a, a national and in turn international boycott of apartheid, which ultimately crumbled i mean not to you know liquidate the larger struggle that was going on by actual south africans but it played a huge role in highlighting their struggle in south africa and leading to the ultimate dissolution of the apartheid state and the empowerment of the anc that's a huge cross-political cross-continental you know connection between the labor movement 
and uh, historically civil rights movements. There's an intersection between like not only civil rights, but like different different identitarian movements uh, and and their struggle for rights as well, like uh, women's rights and things like that, where, uh, for example, like in Portland in the early 19th century, there was a very prominent like shipyard and they were the first sort of enterprise to collectively manage like childcare for the predominantly female working force of their enterprise. So they had like the largest daycare and childcare service for their employees. And I mean, these things are made possible through labor organization, which for the most part has been a hallmark of left-wing or liberal politics in the U.S. You really don't see, not to say that there aren't any people on the right that are proponents of labor unions, but it's a very, very, very limited scope. People that tend to have like right-wing ideologies don't, really tend to see the labor like becoming as powerful as capital as like a desirable condition Mm -hmm. so you don't see like a lot of right-wing proponents of stronger labor movements we've talked a little bit about it but to go more into detail what do you guys think are um examples or different events that characterize labor organization as like sort of a left-wing or or led by the left wing of politics in the U.S. in conjunction with other, like, social movements. You can't talk about unions, the importance of unions, and especially the history of unions without understanding, like, the left's role in, in those spaces. And, you know, as I previously said, obviously there were, like, unions that were exclusive and problematic for various reasons. But on a broader sense, not diving too deep into that, because um, that's a discussion for whole other time but you know historically communists and anarchists a lot of anarchists and communists socialists whatever have played a huge role in the militancy of labor unions the organization of labor unions um and really connecting what labor unions were doing and their overall goal to reach their demands how it was connected specifically to class and capitalism in the United States to kind of like not only get workers energized to, yes, get better benefits for themselves, but to also understand the broader system that was at play. And that's specifically why, you know, you talked about FDR earlier and the Fair Labor Act and not letting kids work in factories anymore. And that's all great and dandy. But FDR also caught it, cut a deal, you know, with essentially the capitalist class in this country I can't remember the exact name of the law or the bill or whatever it was. We'll put it in the show notes. What was though. it? The Taft Hartley. Taft Hartley. Yes. Yeah, the Taft Hartley. Yes, that basically, you know, kicked out all of the communists and anarchists from labor unions and put the labor unions largely in charge of like bosses that were like labor bosses that were I mean, yeah, largely mob affiliated and humongous fucking racists often. Um but put these people in charge who, yes, were sympathetic to labor's demands, but were also not radical enough to really like push the system where it needed to go. Yeah, they just wanted to let labor unions be this institution in U.S. politics and economics where they lived and died fighting for 
the scraps from the table right. of capitalism. And, and it, it merged them more with what you were just saying, the political institution. This is the time when you see the labor unions become more of a wing of the Democratic Party yeah. and less of a like militant force. And that's principally the difference between what we would consider like you know, us as socialists and Marxists, what we what we see labor unions functioning as in society as is is a way to culturally manifest the power of the working class to take control of society, not just fight for scraps from the table of capitalism, but to organize so strongly and so tightly and build the solidarity so well that not only do we demand and get what we demand but then at some point the goal is that we own it right we we want it we got it like right. beyond like our you know beyonce says right right right, right. our favorite <laughs> neoliberal so just transitioning into the overall the takeaway or or the sauce of this episode the relationship that of like capital accumulation like we talked about in our previous episode capital accumulation is this drive of capitalism to consolidate wealth in the hands of the privileged few, the owning class. So it's not only like important for us as workers to have democratic control over our livelihood and our well-being in the workplace and be able to fight for higher wages under capitalism. It's so important now in this era of neoliberal capitalism because everything is becoming more and more and more consolidated the only way that we're going to see any considerable change in this regard is organizing via labor unions. But we want to stray away from organizing chiefly to fight for scraps off the table. We're organizing to take control. Like that is the goal of radical labor unions and labor organizing. That's what separates liberal labor unions from radicalized elements in labor unions. And there are a lot of differing ideologies of laborers in labor unions, but really that is the point if you're a Marxist, in my opinion, is to take control. I mean, that's what a labor union is there to do, is to fight off and stave off the most grotesque and insane and disgusting elements of capitalism. And it's so important today that we realize that and get involved in that, and we really need to be organizing ourselves in that way. So if you are like in a workplace where you think that, you know, most workers would benefit from organizing and getting labor union representation, you really should go and do that. You can, you know, talk to your your fellow workers and see where they're at. And you might be surprised to learn that people, you know, would really benefit from it. So I would urge everyone strongly if you think that it would be appropriate if you're in a job that you think you may stay at for a while, like see if you can organize something like this. Yeah, I just think, you know, too, and you were kind of hitting on it is, you know, we are in this neoliberal moment, right, where everything is hyper individualized and it's hyper globalized. And, you know, anything that can be turned to profit is being turned to profit. And labor union membership now is at an all time low. And it's devastating and it's overwhelming and it's hard to think about sometimes but it's a reality and you know now that capital has gone so global we have to organize and we have to be mobilized and ready to take on these global titans of capital and when that happens when that organization happens 
when the strike happens in, you know, fucking Hong Kong, the American equivalent needs to go on strike with them. Because as diffuse as labor union membership is, not only nationally, but globally, and increasingly becomes more and more so, as devastating that is to think about, at the same time, we are now more than ever accessible to the means that if we were organized, truly having a workers of the world unite. Because we could shut shit down if we really, if we really tried, we could shut it down. Because if... You know, you have Uber blackout in California, and then it's equivalent over in, because I'm assuming it's global, it's equivalent over in Japan and wherever else also shuts down. I mean, even just what happened recently, you know, the amount of impact that that can have on a company with such influence on our daily affairs. You might not have a union at work and you might not have people around you that are necessarily interested in starting a union and it can be a huge, huge challenge. Yep. Matt and I were and talking a risk. about before. Yeah, a risk. It takes a whole lot. But you might know someone who does have a union and they might not know what a union does. So you can always sit down with them and explain to them, hey, here, it might be a good idea for you to join. You know, you might be able to explain these types <laughs> of things to them. In the end, what it just means is is stay educated, right? Know the union etiquette, you know, know when not to cross a strike. Well, never, never, right? Never yeah, cross right, a strike right. line. But you should know those types of things. You should know when they're coming up. You should post about them. You should donate money and send care packages to the strike workers. If there's a strike happening near you, you should show up. You know, that's the best way to show support if you can't be part of a union yourself. This is the way that we, like I said, we fight back against the most grotesque elements of capital. Like, these are the ways that we shut it down. Because when we really realize the amount of power that we have, we can shut it absolutely down. And the capitalists will have no other choice but to realize our power and realize that we run shit. Mm -hmm. Like, the workers run shit. We should own shit. We are the producers in the economy. We make everything run. And and if we stop, the world stops. People need to remember that. And if they want to organize a union, even if their workplace is small, they can seek representation through a larger union. And if you want to learn more about that process, go to the National Labor Relations Board website. It's a government website. And you can set up a p- petition on there to unionize your workplace. And you can get more information there. We highly recommend that as a a direct means to throwing a wrench in the capitalist system if that is what you're intending to do. So with that, guys, we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Entry Level Left. We hope you join us next time and uh, have a great night.